The following is a sermon from Christ Memorial Church. We are a multi-site church in the St. Louis area. We are compelled by two words, loved and sent. We believe everyone is loved deeply by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and everyone is sent with great purpose wherever they go. You can find out more about us at cmstl.org or reliantchurch.org. Enjoy the following sermon. We're looking at a theme in this year for our church, just a season that we're in, a theme of uh, one step, meaning that, that we're all looking at a significant step that we could each take in spiritual maturity and, and just asking God, what, what's a step you want me to take in spiritual maturity this year? And we believe no matter where we're at, we're all on a journey and we all are called to grow. And so uh, as part of that overall theme, we're going to spend a few weeks in Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians, a rel- relatively short letter in the New Testament, and um, focusing on the theme of growing up. As Paul says in chapter 4, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So in Ephesians, Paul answers some big questions. He answers, who are you and what are you living for? And he's pretty serious about it because he wrote this letter while in prison, around 61 or 62 AD. He's in prison, so he's not fooling around. There's not, he doesn't waste any words. He gets right to the point. Um, He's urgent and he's serious because he knows that that time is short. And so he gets right to the heart of the matter, uh, what it is, what, what your identity is and what you're living for. Uh, A biblical scholar has, has, talked about Paul's purpose in Ephesians. He says that Paul's purpose in Ephesians is identity formation. Identity formation, that Paul's purpose in this particular letter is to take the Ephesian church, those Christians, and to form and shape their identity, to get right to the heart of the matter, their identity, who they are, and then how they live that out, what they're living for. It's identity formation. Catholic priest and spiritual writer Henry Nouwen says this about identity. He talks about three lies that we tell ourselves about our identity. That I am what I do, or I am what I have, or I am what others say or think about me. He calls these lies of identity, meaning that certainly we do things, and we have things, and we have reputations, things that people say about us. It's not that that's bad. What he's saying is, when these things become ultimates, when we shape our whole identity, we try to find our identity solely in these things, then it becomes becomes a false god, an idol. When these become ultimates, I am what I do or what I have or what others say or think about me. So think about the first one, I am what I do. If what I do makes me who I am, what happens when I can't do anymore? What happens if uh, I'm not as good at working or doing as I was before? What if age catches up to me and I can't do what I used to do? Or what if my work isn't as good anymore? What if I lose my capability An example of this is with uh, athletes. For professional athletes especially, there's always a huge transition um, out of retirement at a young age. So Andrew Luck was the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. He just retired last week. Big news. He's 29 years old. The 
the pinnacle of his career, and he retires. And like Andrew Luck, all athletes, when they retire, they're wrestling with their identity. Uh, Their whole life has been bound up in their sport. That's who they are. He's a football player. So now who is he if he's no longer a football player? We have a, a young lady in our church who's played volleyball her whole life, competitive volleyball. Uh, all through high school, through varsity. And now she's in college, and she's not playing volleyball. So she was telling me, what, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've always played volleyball. Now, now who am I? I've always been volleyball player. Now who am I? It's easy for us to, to kind of build up who we are by what we do. I am what I have. If what I have makes me who I am, what happens when I lose everything that I have? Am I not me anymore? Do I lose my identity if everything I have is taken away? Some of you have maybe experienced something of this where maybe there's been financial loss or ruin or a job loss. Some of you have been through that or a divorce or a disaster that that took away everything that you thought you had, it was taken away. And you're left wondering, well, now who am I? I, th- I thought I was this person, and now that I don't have what I thought I had, who am I? When we base our identity on what we have. I am what others say or think about me. If what others think about me makes me who I am, what happens when they don't think much of me? What happens when people say nasty things about me? Or when people just ignore me and don't say anything about me? I read an article about a model who was talking about her life as a professional model, especially in her 20s. Uh, She was pretty, and so she got lots of work, uh, magazines and commercials. And she found her identity in being desired, in being wanted. But the shelf life for a model is short. And now years later, she's asking herself, who am I? What People used to pay attention to me. And now, if they're not paying attention to me, Who am I? Am I anybody? Because her identity was wrapped up in what other people saw in her or thought about her or desired for her. Which one of these is a temptation for you? Again, not that we have things and we do things, we have reputations, but which one of these for you Are you tempted to make an ultimate where you put everything in that and then you feel it when when something is taken away or when you can't do anymore or when others don't think much of you? Then you really feel it because you realize you've put everything into this. You've built your identity on it. Which one of these is a temptation for you? Who are you? Paul answers this question, who are you, early and often in Ephesians. Um, As he uses the term in Christ especially, in the the text that was read earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, 14 verses, this term is used 11 times, 
in Christ or in him or in Jesus. It's 11 times in 14 verses. Paul just fires it off again and again, in him, in him. And this formula, this particular term, in Christ, is relatively rare outside of Paul's writings. So the epistles in the New Testament, outside of those, it's not used a whole lot. Paul uses it liberally and extensively. And when he says in Christ, he means something very specific. So what does he mean? Let's take a look at each word for just a moment. Because this applies to you. You are in Christ. So what does that mean? The first word, in. might seem really simple. Like, you know what in means. There's the spatial word for in or meaning for in, the geographical term. So in other words, you are in St. Louis or you are in the building. But Paul is not using the word in in that way. He's using in in another way. And what he means by in is this. Membership. Participation. To be connected. To be incorporated into someone or something. That's what he means by in. So when he says you're in, he means like you're, you're in. You're connected to, participating in. You're a part of something or someone. You're bound up in him, not just physically in a space, but in a person, in a new state. You're in. You were once out. Now you're in. You're a member of. The second word, Christ, that seems kind of like the easy Sunday school answer, Jesus. But there's, there's a nuance here, too, that also Paul is getting at. Certainly, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the man, the God incarnate. He's talking about his life, his death, his resurrection. Yes. But there's, a, there's especially a note of Christ that he's really hammering on. And that is this. He's referring to Christ, namely the cosmic king of the universe. Yes, the Jesus that you can see, that you hear the stories of in Scripture, but Paul is expanding that now and saying, this Jesus, this person, is also a cosmic being, universal. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, you get this language, you get this picture of the cosmic nature of Jesus. If you'd read this with me. Making known to us the mystery of his will which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is describing the cosmic nature of Jesus Christ, that in Christ, everything is held together. Everything, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything is held together by him, every atom and molecule every solar orbit and gravity itself, it's all connected to him. All of creation is participating in him somehow because he is the key to everything. He's the center of God's plan for all of human history. He's the center of the wheel that every spoke goes to. He's the cornerstone on everything rests on. He's the hinge that heaven and earth turn on. He's the the key that unlocks all the mysteries of the world. 
everything that God wants to do in the world, everything that he wants to do in the world is summed up in Jesus Christ. That line, to unite all things in him, can also be translated that all things are summed up in him. Everything. God is now has a destiny for the whole world, his whole creation, to redeem it. And it's all done in and through Jesus Christ. He's the center of it all. This cosmic king. So when this term, in Christ, is applied to you, when it's on you, here's what it means. It means that you are connected to the cosmic king. That you are a part of Jesus himself, through which God is doing everything in the world. You're not just around Jesus. It's not just a bumper sticker you put on your car. You are in Christ. You're wrapped up in him. When you were baptized, God claimed you. He said, you are now in Christ. Everything I want for you is done through him. You are in his life. You are in his forgiveness. Everything about your life is changed now. You're in him. This is why Martin Luther suggested that every Christian, first thing you do when you wake up, he said every Christian should make the sign of the cross. We did with the kids. Why? You don't have to, but why did he suggest that? To remind you of your identity, that you are in Christ, that his name is on you, and that determines who you are. Names are important. They tell you something about who you are. Your name says something about who you are. So too with Christ. When you are in Christ, when his name is on you, it says something about who you are. It marks you. It defines your identity as one who is in this life of this cosmic king. Paul gets at this by using in Christ like a million times through Ephesians. Actually, somebody told me they did a count, like 35-ish is what they said in Ephesians. He says, in Christ. But a name changes your destiny. So Paul is using in Christ, in Christ, to establish your new name, your, your identity. In Christ is not just a label that you choose. In Christ is not a belief system. In Christ is not... It's not just uh, the fact that you hold a membership in a church. It's bigger than that. In Christ is a whole new state to be wrapped up in his person. It's a new name that gives you a new status. So the word Christian means little Christ. That's what it means. When you call yourself a Christian, you're saying, I'm a little Christ. And that name means something. It means that you're a child, that you're part of his family, that you're incorporated into who he is. You're a little Christ. Names matter. They mean something. They tell you something about your identity. Our family last name is Clater. And there are six of us in our house that share that last name. We have different first names but we have the same last name. And this is kind of a picture of what that means for us, that it binds us together. We may be different and different heights, but we're bound together. We all have the same last name. 
And that means something to our family, as your name means something to you. And maybe it's similar in your house, but in our house, uh, our name means a couple of things at least. First, the name Clater means that there's a lot of grace in our house, that we need a lot of grace shown to one another. And that defines our household. Second, the name Clater also means that there's responsibility. There's responsibility in being part of this family. So, Clater is, a, is an important name for our family. It says something about who we are. It means that if you're yelled at, or if you sass back to mom or dad, you're in trouble. But you're not kicked out of the family because you still are a Clater, and there's grace in that name. You're, you're still allowed to stay in the house. Clater means that if you drop a stick of butter on the kitchen floor and you don't pick it up and your dad comes along and slips on it and falls, you're in trouble. But you still get to eat dinner at night because you're still part of the family. You're still a Clater. There's grace in that name. And we need grace in our families. Even more so, there's grace in the name Christ, so that when you're in this family, that name means that you're in, even when you turn your back on God, even when you royally mess up, even when you act a hypocrite or self-righteous, you're still in Christ, even when you violate God's law and you don't even give a second thought about it, even when you ignore him, even when you hurt other people, you're still in Christ and he still lets you in. That name means something. It's your identity, and it doesn't just go away. In Christ means that you're wrapped up in him, so that when you do falter, there is forgiveness for all of those things, that God wipes it clean. In Christ means that you're accepted, that God accepts you even when he shouldn't. In Christ means that there are second chances, because that name carries grace with it. You're still part of the family. In our house, the name Clater also means, it doesn't just mean grace, but it also means that there's responsibility in your family. Clater doesn't mean it's not a license to lounge around and eat ice cream and play video games all day. You're not allowed to do that. Clater means there's responsibility It means that you help make dinner and you help clean up. It means that you clean your room. It means that you take out the recyclables. It means that you clean out the bearded dragon's cage when it stinks really bad. It means that you participate in family devotions after dinner. It means, Clater means that you uh, do the verse of the week every week and you memorize a piece of scripture. Clater means that when an ambulance goes by with the sirens wailing, you pray for that person. Clater means that that you sacrifice, you give up of yourself for other people. Clater means that you set an example for your friends, your responsibility with the name. Just as there's responsibility with the name Clater, even more so there's responsibility in Christ when you bear that name, even more so. That he's called you into a family and with that comes obedience and there's joy in that obedience. With that comes growth, as Paul says. Now, you, now you're in the family. Now you grow up into the head, Jesus Christ. 
And as you grow up, there's more and more responsibility. So Paul will lay this out. If you go read Ephesians, now we're going to be in a few weeks in Ephesians, read the whole letter and you'll see that progression. Chapter 1, he mentions in Christ over and over and over again. You're in Christ, you're in him, you're in Jesus. It's your identity, it's who you are. And then it progresses. Now you have responsibility. Chapter 4, you're in Christ, so now you have responsibility to the body of Christ, to your church. Chapter 5, now you have responsibility to your family, uh, brothers and sisters and parents and siblings. Chapter 6, now you have responsibility to work and to the world. And he just builds on that. Your identity in Christ also comes with growth and responsibility and obedience In Christ, you're part of a family with a measurable grace and with significant responsibility. I've shared with some of you that in recent weeks or months, I've kind of been going through a mini crisis because I'm entering a new season of life. And what kind of sparked that is, and some of you, many of you have been through this, uh, my oldest is now in high school. So it's kind of like, I'm in another level. And uh, with that, it's a little scary, but also you realize, you know, little kids aren't little anymore. And those days are gone. There's a little bit of sadness with that too. There's also some joy with that too. But there's some sadness also that there are certain days and a certain stage of life is over. And really, all of life is that. All of you are living through different seasons where there's the close of one thing and there's the start of something new. And it can happen with kids. It can happen as a child when you were a toddler and then those days are gone. Preschool is gone. Now you're in school and then that's gone and then you're in high school and then college. Some of you are uh, empty nesters and that's a new stage for you. Uh, Some of you are retirees and now that's a whole new life stage. Some of you are in a stage where, where health is declining and that's a new stage. You're trying to navigate what does this mean? And as I was thinking about how there's like a little bit of sadness that I'm in this next stage, I also thought, well, like, what do I, ex- what do I expect? Um, my kids, my, my oldest daughter is becoming what I have prayed for. I've asked God to answer this, and he is. She's growing in grace and responsibility. Do I want to go backwards where there's not growth? No, every season of life is filled with opportunities for growth in grace and in responsibility. And it doesn't matter what stage it is. For some of you, you're trying to figure out high school and you're trying to navigate friendships and academics. And it's an opportunity for growth in grace and in responsibility and in obedience to God. For some of you, maybe you're entering those difficult years of older age and your body hurts and you can't do what you used to do, and that's hard. But you're still young because you're learning, even in that stage. You're seeing God's grace in new ways, and you're learning obedience in new ways, responsibility in new ways. Every season of life is an opportunity to grow, no matter what season it is. And every season of life, you're going to see God differently new forms of that relationship that you have in Christ. You're going you're to be reminded of your identity in new ways that you never did before. The world 
tempts us to define our identity by what we do or by what we have or by what people think of us. But in Christ, your identity is in Christ. In Christ, your identity is grounded. No matter what people say or no matter what you do or what you have, that is an unchanging constant. You belong to the living God. You are in Christ. The cosmic king of the universe is your king. And your identity is based on what he does and what he has and what he says about you. And grounded in that identity, you can navigate any stage of life and continue to grow in immeasurable grace and insignificant responsibility. You are in Christ. Thank you again for listening to the sermon from Christ Memorial. If you happen to be in St. Louis or live in St. Louis, we would love to meet you and have you join us for worship on Sunday. We are located in South County, St. Louis at 5252 South Lindbergh. We also have a city site called Reliant that is located on the St. Louis University Medical Campus in Crave Coffee House. You can find all of our worship times and information at cmstl.org or reliantchurch.org. Hope you have a good day, and remember, you are loved by God deeply through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you are sent with great purpose wherever you go. Have a good day.